You're listening to The Perch Pod from Perch Perspectives. Good morning, listeners. Welcome to another episode of The Perch Pod. As usual, I'm Jacob Shapiro. I'm your host. I'm also the founder and chief strategist of Perch Perspectives, which is a human-centric business and political consulting firm. Joining joining us on the show for the second time is Dr. Kamran Bukhari. Uh, Kamran has a lot of impressive-sounding titles, but uh, his main thing right now is that he's Director of Analytical Development at the Center for Global Policy. I wanted to talk to Kamran for a pretty simple reason. Uh, He is the smartest, most insightful analyst I know who is studying the geopolitics of the Muslim world and international relations between Muslim countries, between Muslim countries and non-Muslim countries, and also uh, domestic political issues facing Muslim countries. And this is a hot-button topic right now. When you look around the world, there's the the French-Turkish clashes over Macron using the phrase Islamist separatism. There's the Armenia-Azerbaijan war. There's the Turkey-Russia rivalry. There's always something going on with Pakistan and India. Uh, there's the what's happening with the Uyghurs in China. There are just so many issues where Muslim geopolitics is at the center of it all. And as a result of that, I, I wanted to talk to Kamran, and I'm extremely thankful that he was willing to be generous with his time to share his insights with us. Uh, so thank you, Kamran. You can check out the Center for Global Policy if you're interested. Listeners, if you have not signed up for the free Perch Perspectives newsletter, please visit us at perchperspectives.com to do so. Uh, As I said, uh, we're we're recording this on November 6th, and right before we got on the podcast, uh, it looked like Fox News was calling Pennsylvania for Joe Biden. Um, As I've been saying to clients, and as I said at a supply chain conference that I spoke at earlier this week, no matter where the dust settles on the U.S. election, geopolitics is really going to define a lot of multinational and global business going forward. You can reach out to us at info at perchperspectives.com if you want to learn more about the, the types of geopolitical analysis and risk services we provide to help companies manage this increasingly fractured, increasingly competitive environment. Um, you can also just check us out at perchperspectives.com and learn more about us that way. Okay, enough talking from me. Uh, let's get on to Kamran. Enjoy the show. Thanks, y'all. Uh, Kamran, thanks for joining us. It's uh, it's eight nineteen on Friday, November sixth. This will be posting in about a week. Uh, Fox News. It looks like just called Pennsylvania. So we we picked a good time to start recording a podcast. Kamran, welcome to the welcome to the show. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Indeed, it is a uh, a uh, a moment uh, that is an inflection point, if you will. Yeah. Well, I, I guess let the lawsuits begin now. Is is how we're going to go. Um, Kamran, you're, you're the first uh, repeat guest on the Perch podcast. And I wanted, I reached out to you specifically because of what's been going on, um, not just in France, but particularly in French Turkish relations, but also in Europe, um, a recap for listeners who maybe weren't paying attention or who have, who have lost track of this. Um, there was an issue. Well, I guess this goes back a couple weeks. Um, French president Emmanuel Macron gave this speech about how he wanted to target Islamist separatism. And he's been very particular about his wording. He wants you to say Islamist separatism. Um, and then a couple weeks after that, um, a French geography teacher was literally beheaded in a suburb outside of Paris uh, by someone who was upset that this teacher had shown images and cartoons of the Prophet Muhammad in a class about French citizenship. He was making the point about what freedom of speech is, showed these ca- uh, cartoons of the Prophet Muhammad, which have upset folks in the Muslim world. Um, and a terrorist, you know, attacked him in the street and was actually killed when the French tried to arrest him. Um, Macron and France obviously reacted very negatively to this. 
Um, and Macron sort of doubled down on that Islamist separatism language and about how France needed to deal um, with its uh, with with Islam as a problem inside of its own country and inside of Europe. And Turkish President Erdogan did not like any of that and tried to assume mantle of leadership in the Muslim world and started railing against Macron for being anti-Muslim. He even compared the plight of Muslims in France to that of the Jews before World War II, which was an insane comparison from where I sit, but curious to know if that if that has any credence from you, Kamran. But it didn't stop with, with France or Turkey. Protests against France really spread throughout the Muslim world um, in a diverse range of countries from you know, the UAE to Qatar to Bangladesh. Protests against French products and against um, these depictions of the Prophet Muhammad. So, Kamran, there was no better person in my mind who, who looks at Muslim geopolitics in general and the relationship between Muslim countries and other countries in the world. So, I wanted to have you on and start by just, um, why don't we just start at the simplest level? Um, can you explain to listeners why depictions or cartoons of the Prophet Muhammad are such a big deal in the Muslim world? I think that's one of the key things in the West that we have a lot, a really hard time understanding um, because you know, freedom of speech is the idea that even if you have vile or reprehensible speech, um, you're allowed to say whatever you want. That's the whole point. And there's this disconnect between it's just a cartoon. What, why are we generating so much animosity, so much violence about a cartoon? So help us understand why that issue is such a hot button topic in the Muslim world. Thank you for having me. And I'm, I'm honored to be the first repeat guest uh, on Perch Pod. Um, to answer your question, um, it, it, there are a couple of things here. The first is that um, pictures and depictions of things are uh, seen as, if you will, um, idolatry. You know, there, it's a form of idolatry. It goes back to the earliest days of Islam where uh, the idea was that you worship God and you don't sort of come up with, um, you know, you, the polytheism is something that uh, when Islam came, it really went after uh, the whole idea of uh, what in the uh, Islamic tradition is called shirk, uh, S-H-I-R-K. And that concept means associating partners with the Almighty. And so that concept forms, the, it's called, you know, it's the, the concept of uh, tawhid or monotheism or a oneness of, of, uh, of the divine. So this entire thing comes from that, this, this aversion to coming up with, uh, you know, pictorial depictions and so on and so forth uh, emanates from that sort of root understanding. Um, and then when it comes to the Prophet Muhammad, um, there a lot of things have been conflated. So there's sort of like the there's one aspect of, OK, you know, illustrations of the Prophet Muhammad. So that's one thing. Then uh, there is the issue of, uh, if you will, a disrespect to the prophet. Uh, and then the, 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 the sort of, you know, the next level is, you know, the quote unquote blasphemy uh, perception of, of this act. So there, there's a lot in there that's packed in there and it gets conflated. And, you know, I'd like to be able to pick that apart. And thank you for the opportunity to do that. So uh, the Prophet Muhammad was, uh, was considered uh, a, a human being uh, and not divine. So, for example, when the Prophet died, one of the most prominent companions who became the second caliph 
uh, was distraught, uh, Omar. And, uh, you know, he was worried and, and you know, he was sad. And uh, the, the person who became the first caliph, Abu Bakr, basically said, and this is sort of tradition, this is, these are narrations that tell us, that he said that those who worship Muhammad, let them know Muhammad is dead. And those who worship Allah, uh, let them know that Allah will, is eternal. And so, in other words, you know, redirecting uh, the entire sort of uh, viewfinder of the community at that time back to monotheism, that, you know, you got to keep your eye on the ball, uh, which is, you know, God Almighty. And Muhammad was his messenger, was his, was his slave, was his messenger, and he did what he had to do, and he's gone, and he was a human being. So there is that aspect of, okay, you know, we don't depict pictures and, and, you know, because of the fear of, you know, people would start to worship. And even today, you know, look at Salafism, for example, and I know if I'm fast forwarding here, but I want to bring this example in here. So if you look at Salafism, if you look at the Salafi view of Hold on, Kamran, could you just um, define for the audience um, like a a brief Salafism for dummies before you look at, at Salafism? Of course. So um, Salafism is a modern ideology that sort of basically says that, uh, you know, from the time of the prophet until now, there's been a lot of contamination of the purity of the thought and practice of Islam. And Salafism as a movement, and, you know, I, we can go into details if we need to, but for, for our purposes right now, it's a movement that basically says, uh, you know, we need to expunge these things that have entered sort of the religious discourse of, of Muslims and need to go back to the earliest generations, need to go back to the Salaf, meaning the the the, the, uh, the word is Salaf Salihin, means pious predecessors. Salaf means predecessors, which they basically mean the prophet and his companions, and they basically, they're Puritans. So if you look at, uh, you know, how that movement is, uh, is, is behaving or has been behaving for a few decades now, they're against this sort of marabou practice of shrines and saints, uh, Sufism, Shiite practices, things that are seen as heterodox. So, uh, so this entire idea of p- painting pictures, and if you look historically, uh, you know, uh, people who are of Shia persuasion, uh, they have historically had you know illustrations of. Uh, you know, the prophet's cousin and son-in-law, Ali, who they think should have been the successor to the prophet. And then, you know, his son, uh, Hussein, who was uh, killed in, in, a, in a battle in Karbala in 680, and, and the whole, you know, eschatology of, of Shiite Islam stems from that. So they're not averse to making pictures. And so uh, although they, I haven't seen a whole lot of pictures of Prophet Muhammad, but again, you know, they are open to making pictures of other uh, prominent Islamic figures from Islamic history uh, whom they revere. So this isn't black and white. That's the point I'm trying to make is that for a long time, uh, for centuries, you know, this was understood that, okay, you know, we just don't make pictures. Now, uh, you come into the modern world, not only are there, you know, there is art, uh, there's modern art that comes from, you know, that doesn't come from, but was celebrated in the Renaissance. You go through the Reformation and the Enlightenment and you come to, you know, modern uh, Western political social thought. This is Western civilization where art is a part of it. And if you, and if you, 
uh, it's seen as celebrating the past or celebrating things. It's a form of celebration. Uh, the Muslim world, uh, you know, operates from a different sort of value system here or has operated historically. And this ties into the whole conflict that we're seeing where uh, the world is following, you know, by and large, there is a the dominant discourse is, is Western political thought at the moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and but the Muslim world is still struggling with that in terms of, you know, OK, how much of it do we incorporate? How much of it is just simply innocuous modernization versus, you know, cultural, quote unquote, contamination. Uh, and so that debate is going on. And and you have to be able to place these cartoons, the blasphemy charges, the the anger and the whole thing into both theological and political context. I already explained the theological context, which has to do with monotheism and the root and the, which is rooted in Islam, which is in the essence of Islam. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't make depictions or you should make depictions. Obviously, those are things that Muslims along in the way, you know, throughout history have interpreted, reinterpreted in different ways. Um, But it's a a fact of life that uh, there are no depictions of the Prophet Muhammad. I mean, there are no depictions of God Almighty himself. Um, I mean, that would just basically go against the doctrine of Islam. But there's uh, there's nothing to say that uh, necessarily that, OK, you know, this can't happen. Some people may want to do this. Uh, a lot of people have not wanted to do this. So this is the context. Then you escalate it to a cartoon where uh, the prophet is, um, you know, becomes the subject of sort of humor, to say the least, and uh, you know, in, from the from the perspective of many Muslims, mockery, if you will. So there is that aversion to uh, deep, you know, you know. There's like, uh, if you will, intense uh, resentment towards that thing. And then, of course, you know, the whole they view France as trying to push its form of laicism, or you know, its its sort of uh, you know its version of secularism, and so it further complicates that whole problem. So, but I guess what I'm trying to say here is that there are so many things that we need to talk about in order to understand this. There is no like one answer that can sort of explain this all. Yeah, and I'll try and steer us right. I wrote down a couple questions based on what you were just talking. Well, hopefully we'll hit them all. If not, we'll have to have you back on for a third time, Kamran. The the first question, and that this is more of a technical one, and I don't know the answer to it, even though I've spent a good amount of time studying Islam. Does... Does the intention behind the depiction of the prophet matter at all? Um, to, to put that differently, this this school teacher Samuel Paty, he he wasn't showing this cartoon of Muhammad in order to disrespect the prophet. Um, the cartoon itself might have been disrespectful or blasphemous from a Muslim perspective, but he wasn't showing it to ridicule the prophet. He was trying to make a point to a room full of, of um, I think it was, he was teaching like a citizenship class, but a room full of people, he was trying to demonstrate to them what freedom of speech looks like in France. So he took a controversial image and showed it to them. Does that theologically change the equation at all? Like, would it have been worse and would it have set off um, even, even more sort of angry feelings if he had specifically been doing it 
um, to ridicule the prophet? Or is there no difference at all? Is it just, well, once the depiction is made and once there's this offensive cartoon, by showing it, you have committed the crime and now you are insulting the prophet? So there's a lot of ad hocism here. So first of all, I want to say is that um, this is an extreme response to what the school teacher did. Uh, and definitely intent uh, here uh, wasn't. His intent wasn't to uh, displease or create, you know, or make mockery of. Uh, he, the teacher was doing his job and they were, he was teaching his students the way he thought best. Um, so there is that aspect, but there is also the aspect that this is an extreme response. You know, most Muslims in France will not behave that way. There, there will be, you know, there are people who will, uh, but there's a spectrum here. There'll be a lot of people who come out and protest. There'll be a lot of people who will, you know, in their homes be very angry. There'll be resentment and whatnot. You know, uh, what are these people trying to teach our kids and that kind of discourse and, you know, we're losing our cultural cohesion. This is an onslaught. I'm going through sort of the thought process here that isn't just uh, limited to this individual that committed this horrendous crime of beheading a school teacher. Uh, but it, I'm talking about the wider sort of conversation that takes place. So there's a spectrum. And a lot of people will resent this. You know, it's going to be a really tiny fringe that is probably ready to say, okay, you know what, this is so bad that I need to take the law in my hand and, 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 and engage in this crime. So there is that aspect. Now, yes, the, this is, again, you know, you point to, your question points to the complexity of the issue. And the problem is that the politics surrounding it uh, really has a simplification effect where it becomes really black and white. Uh, and, and, it, and, and the way it is politicized uh, it, both on, you know, on the part of what, uh, and I want to be able to get into sort of, you know, uh, the whole idea of why Macron is basically calling uh, out Islamist separatism as a threat mm-hmm. and uh, the politics on the other side, which is within the Muslim communities. Uh, there is no sort of consensus other than the fact that uh, the communities are uncomfortable with the depictions of the Prophet Muhammad. They have no solution for this. They're, they're, it's, it's a, this is a reactive sort of way of looking at things. And, you know, they, there is no, uh, you know, you're asking a question, what is the, you know, Islamic view uh, of things? And I'm, my response would be that there is no one Islamic view. There are as many views as there are Muslims. And that is the problem. The, the problem is that there isn't a, uh, if you will, uh, a coherent response to this because they have not been uh, they've not been forced to deal with this or they've not had to deal with this until you know the encounter with the French and French laicism in the form of immigration and if you look I mean I was just you know this morning someone shared a uh, on Twitter uh, uh, something from the uh, the Pakistani Prime Minister that's saying you know you can't uh, justify uh, blasphemy. Uh, by sort of tucking it under or, you know, labeling it as freedom of expression. So you have these reactive responses, but beyond that, there is no conversation as to what needs to be done. Forget about the wider issue of freedom of speech, freedom of expression, uh, and, and how to deal with that. How do we operationalize that? And, and so, again, you know, there's so much complexity here, and I'm trying to be fair 
to all sides and trying to sort of unpack and 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 you know bring out the the nuances here because unless we understand those uh we're not going to be able to make sense of this and and the current sort of uproar and 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 uh, you know crisis situation will continue yeah i want to ask you one more contextual question and then we can dive into peeling back the the political onion if you will because there's as you said there is a lot there that we're going to have to unpack but the the what you're describing and especially the way you were describing salafism that's not inherently just a muslim thing um you know P- protestant christianity also rejects images of Jesus Christ. One of the things that defines the split between Protestantism and Catholicism is, um, you know, the Protestants didn't like that Catholics were representing the figure of Jesus Christ because they were worried specifically about concerns of idolatry. Uh, Judaism, which is the other monotheism, you know, going back a long way has, has concerns about depictions and illustrations and idolatry. That's a really active um, sort of religious taboo in both of the other monotheisms. The question I want to ask you, and it's maybe an impossible question to answer, and maybe you'll tell me again, there's no one way to generalize about this, is that um, you know, even though you have fundamentalist Christians, um, fundamentalist Jews in the modern world who sort of have their own versions of Salafism and, and, and ascribe to those versions of having to go back in time to when something was pure, um, you wouldn't get a similar response to where if somebody uh, in a Muslim country was you know, depicting jesus with a cartoon i don't think you would see christian fundamentalists rise up and start boycotting that country's goods <laughs> or or trying to even just and you know some muslim leaders did this i mean the the former malaysian prime minister most obviously but there were a couple others too almost justifying the sort of violence that happened against samuel petit because oh it's it's blasphemy and yes it's really bad but you know you can't insult an entire people like that well you know anything you say before the word but in that sort of construction for me doesn't really matter it's you you condemn the extremism and then we can talk about as you said this extremely complicated hot button issue um but i i just want to sit on that question and push a little further and ask you know, why do you have a sense of why that minority of muslims who feel this way and who whose feelings about this complex issue are transformed into violent action. Why does that happen in Islam versus other religions? Or am I just missing in other religions that, that, that this does happen? And I'm being unfair to Islam there by pointing out that it's somehow unique, that there is this violent twinge about this very particular issue. No, I don't think you're being unfair. But but to answer your question, I think the it's, you know, the, the, the Judeo-Christian civilization um, you know, yes, what you just said, you know, about idolatry and about Protestant Christianity versus Catholicism, that's all true. But there is a journey that, you know, the Judeo-Christian, uh, you know, world has taken. Um, and that is through, you know, the Reformation and then the Enlightenment and modernity. And the norms have changed. The norms have changed where it is not seen as it doesn't become an existential issue for Christians if someone depicted, you know, I mean, let's just talk about graffiti. How many times do we run into graffiti depicting Jesus Christ? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that is a that that sort of you know underscores a comfort level, a a if you will that journey that I, I'm talking about, the intellectual journey that the Judeo-Christian world has taken to where they say, okay, you know what? This isn't like, I'm not losing my religion here to, to, to 
borrow from the 1990s REM song. Um, <laughs> I really like that one. Uh, but but you get my point that there it, it doesn't immediately conjure up. Oh, you know, I'm about to lose my religion. You know, Islam is in danger. You don't see that. You don't see Christianity as being in danger. Yes, there are those people out there. I mean, let's look at the current political context in the United States. Uh, the people who are, you know, supporters of of, of uh, President Donald Trump, a lot of them feel that, you know, the world as they know it is under threat. But it's still qualitatively very different. You know, those same people are not going to say, okay, they have their own issues that, okay, I cannot tolerate abortion or, you know, um, uh, the only marriage is between a man and a woman. You get those kind of ideas, and they're very few and select. I think what is happening in the Muslim context is there is a sense of vulnerability. There's a, there is a discomfort because they, they, they're not comfortable with, you know, uh, that with their Islam, if you will. They, they feel Islam is under siege, under threat. It needs to be protected. Uh, there, there are those among within the, the Muslim context who they disagree with and, and, and they see that as a threat. And again, you know, it depends on who is the person thinking here, what sect, what the persuasion of Islam that person belongs to. But be, it's not just the internal thing. Then they see, you know, uh, an ascendant West, uh, you know. Um, so, I mean, it's as simple as this. Uh, you know, we, we're talking about the cartoons. But there are a lot of Muslims who are, uh, you know, very uncomfortable with the idea that they, their, their children uh, are, are, you know, being exposed to this. And this isn't just in the West. This is all over the world uh, where, you know, sexual preference is something that they have to accept. And so it's, it's, it's really uncomfortable for a whole lot of them. And so it's not a so while the violent uh, you know, uh, fringe is definitely a small minority, but it's it, it, it operates in a broader context where a whole lot of Muslims feel that, you know, they're not comfortable with Islam. They, they're, uh, it also has to do with geopolitics. Uh, and, and then, of course, you know, when, when you have your political leaders like Prime Minister Imran Khan or, you know, Mahathir or Erdogan, uh, Mahathir being the, the former prime minister of uh, Malaysia. When you have these leaders who who are populist, when saying stuff like that, then, you know, that just energizes that whole uh, sentiment. And they say, OK, you know what, we need to stand up and we need to defend our values, uh, you know, against this onslaught that is not just external, but there are people, Muslims in the community who believe like the other, in quotes, believes. Yeah, and I, I'm feeling this, so I'm going to sort of put in just a little disclaimer here and say, you know, if I'm feeling this, I'm sure some listeners might be feeling this too. Um, these are, these ideas are not, um, what's, what's a good, I don't want to, I don't want to use the word normal, but it's very hard to relate to some of these ideas that Kamran is talking about. Um, and there is a, there's an impulse even in me who I'm sort of trying to always be objective and always be open. Even I have a sort of knee-jerk reaction inside of me, which says, well, who cares if they're uncomfortable? Like, that's the whole point. And if you're uncomfortable, turn off the television or take away the iPad from your children. Like, don't make this my problem. But I, I don't want to go there. I just want to sort of say I understand that that, in, uh, that instinct is inside of folks who are living in these Western societies because I feel it myself. 
And that tells me that this conversation is all the more important because we're trying to understand what's going on here. And the fact that it, it creates those feelings of dissonance to me says we're on the right track because we're honing in on the things that don't make sense. And maybe we can punch through and get a little bit of, of better understanding. So with that throat clearing out of the way, why don't we dip our toes in the politics, Kamran? Um, and I, I want to get I want to get to to why Macron and why France, because I think that's a particularly big issue. But I wanted to start because you you chose to contextualize this issue when I asked you the first question with Salafism. And um, that, that wasn't necessarily surprising to me, but it seems to me that the first country that really led this charge against against France over this particular issue was Turkey. And I don't think of Turkey as particularly Salafist, and I don't think of Erdogan as that sort of leader. You know, I sort of think of Saudi Arabia as the the platonic example, uh, to use a weird metaphor, of, of what Salafism looks like in the modern world. But it was Turkey was the one that really led the charge here. So how do we explain why Turkey made this such a big issue? And maybe we can use that to start talking about politics, because I have a suspicion that your answer is going to be, well, this is all tied into Turkish geopolitics. Uh, and less into some of the theological context we've been talking about up to now. So yes, and 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 your question, you know, nicely emanates from your throat clearing earlier, uh, <laughs> and and I want to be able to connect the two. So regarding your comments uh, that you dubbed as throat clearing, I also want to say that the bigger issue here for the Muslim world is uh, what does freedom of expression mean, or what are the boundaries? Uh, and how 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 is that that value? Obviously, people value freedom of expression. Uh, they don't want to be, you know, whether you're Muslim or you don't believe in anything, you believe in yourself. You don't want to be stopped from expressing yourself. And so, in general, freedom of expression is great. Ah, but when it comes to certain issues, uh, does that you know is that freedom of expression? Well, you know, it's. It's a, it cuts over or cuts into doctrine and religious values. And, and, and I, I'm beginning to hear a lot about hurt, if you will, you know, sentiments being hurt. And a lot of people who, uh, you know, are pushing back at the freedom of expression in the Muslim world, uh, they are saying, well, at the very least, you're hurting my sentiments because I love the prophet. And by you doing this, you're hurting my sentiments. Then, of course, the, the the point that you made is that okay nobody is forcing it turn off the television so that that's why i go back to freedom of expression is that freedom of expression has not been fully uh, uh if you will understood uh thought about much less operationalized in muslim context and it has a lot to do with uh, the politics and the geopolitics uh of of that part of the world uh, where you know freedom of expression just doesn't exist as a value in a lot of places, uh, and so I think we need to keep that in mind when trying to understand that th why is it that you know you have some people who engage in in, in downright criminality and horrible acts uh, of violence, but then there's this larger swath that doesn't focus on that that horrible act of taking someone's life, even though, you know, it's in the Quran that if you kill one person, it's as if you've killed all of humanity. And why is that verse, uh, you know, 
frozen at the time when people, at least in the minds of people, when they're approaching this subject and they're trying to shift the conversation from the taking of, you know, uh, the unlawful taking of human life uh, and essentially engaging in anarchic behavior and just steering that to say, oh, but, but, you know, it is about this, it is about that. So I just want to leave that there and now dive into your question about um, the geopolitics. Yes, obviously there is something called uh, the 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 idea and then the weaponization of the idea. So I Salafism, I brought that up because I'm trying to depict the dynamic of the people who actually believe to, to varying degrees in certain ideas and they're willing to act on them and, and, and they want to be able to guard those ideas. Those, you know, let's just call them, you know, for a lack of better term, the true believers. Uh, And then uh, not to say that, you know, those who weaponize that political actors, geopolitical actors, they don't believe. They do believe at some level. And yes, it is in their personal faith and belief does sort of motivate them. But they have advanced to a level of evolution because of being political actors that uh, for them, this is more an opportunity to weaponize something uh, to further their interests, whether it is in the case, uh, you know, if, if, if Erdogan is a perfect example. He's facing a situation where, you know, um, it's probably safe to say his best days are behind him. I mean, he's been in power for a long time. Uh, you know, his health is okay, but, you know, he's, he's growing old and, you know, circumstances and your support base over time changes. And so you need to keep revitalizing that. So this thing, the statement from Macron, and I'm not talking about the the, the unfortunate beheading of this school, poor school teacher, but if you go, you know, several days before that, the whole idea, uh, statement about uh, Islamic or Islamist separatism, that statement, that remark, that comment from Macron, you know, was red meat for for Erdogan, you know, he, he basically picked up picked it up and said, "Great, you know, now I can, you know, satisfy a domestic political uh, imperative here. Is I'm standing up for Islam and I'm energizing my base. That hey, you know what? Maybe the economy isn't doing well. Maybe we've got a, a lot of challenges here. Syria isn't working out the way we thought it would. But look, you know, nobody in the Muslim world is talking about this." the way I do, and I'm actually the first one to go, uh, you know, uh, confront Macron and, and, and the French Republic. So there is that domestic political uh, need that he's satisfying. Plus, there's also a geopolitical need. Uh, Erdogan, uh, you know, in his vision uh, of, of his country and, 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 its, and its place in uh, the Muslim world and, you know, at the crossroads of the East and the West, he, this is an opportunity to f- advance himself as not just a president of Turkey, but as a leader of the Islamic world and, and, and gain that mileage and basically reach out, telegraph. You know, this is, uh, you know, the, you, you know it's, it's kind of like, you know, I don't know if the word is accurate, but, you know, it's kind of dog whistling to me where you're basically sending out a message to the French people, Muslims in France from various parts of the world who may have their own internal differences, but he's positioning himself as their savior, as their protector, as, as someone who's speaking up for them. And he's an, he is enhancing, this is his way of 
enhancing, you know, the geopolitical, if you will, uh, influence, his personal influence, which I guess is right now, you know, is not different from, there is no personal geopolitical influence if he wasn't president of Turkey, but he's using the Turkish state to be able to advance that, uh, that imperative or that ambition, if you will. Yeah, there's so much there. I, I love that you you had the quote about you know, whoever kills someone, it's a, it's as if they killed all humanity. That of course comes from the Mishnah, comes from the Talmud. That's a shout out there. And it's interesting how these concepts weave their way throughout all of the religions. You know, it's it's all interconnected here when we get back to it. I'd also steal a a line I know you like to always use, which is um, I'm not sure that I would discount Erdogan quite quite yet. I don't think he's a toothless old Grishna cat. I think he's still got some bite left in him before we're going to say that he's past his best years. Um, so I would just caution us on that. But but to your point, um, it's it's funny, you know. In, in my previous life, I've, I have a master's in Jewish studies before I became a political analyst, and um, France, in some ways, is is the key. It's the key moment in the development of modern Judaism because when the French Revolution happens. There are debates about what rights are going to be given to the Jews and to France's other minorities. And there's this um, this quote that I, I think it's the French National Assembly. Some French you know political body ends up discussing whether the Jews are going to be integrated in as full French citizens. And the formulation that usually gets shared, and you'll you'll learn this in any sort of intro to modern Jewish studies class, is that the French National Assembly says to the Jews, "You're denied all of your rights as a nation." but you get all French rights as an individual. You have no rights as, as sort of this nation apart, a separate sort of Jewish state within the French empire, republic, or whatever version they were in, because it was the things were kind of fluid back then. But as individuals, you have all the rights of Frenchmen, including the right to worship however you want um, behind closed doors. And that's really what Macron was saying in his speech about Islamist separatism. Um, I'd encourage folks to read it if if you haven't. Maybe I can put a link to his comments in the in the podcast description. Um, you can disagree with Macron or or not. Um, there's a lot to disagree with him in general on, but he's very thoughtful and he used his words very very intentionally. I think he really was saying, you know, I'm rejecting this idea that folks are don't have to buy into the values of the French state. If you're a French citizen and you're here, there are certain values you're going to have to ascribe to. And if you don't ascribe to them, you're not French. And that's the way the French Republic works. And that's the way French politic, politics works. And if you don't like it, you can leave, but you can't stay here because these are French values. But I, I think this is where the politics also gets wrapped up into it as well, because domestically, he's coming to elections in about two years. Um, his biggest challenge thus far and the biggest challenger in French politics in general in the last couple of years has been from, if, well, let's crudely simplify, but we'll call them the far right, the sort of anti-migrant, uh, Eurosceptic far right led by you know, the various generations of the Le Pen family. Um, I, I don't think she'll ever actually win, but she was the one who got the second most votes last time. So he's probably trying to burnish some cred credentials there domestically. But then when we get to the, the, the Turkey-France issue, it seems to me that the operative religious argument disappears once you look at the board because on the board you've got france and turkey on opposite sides of the libyan civil war you've kind of got them i guess on the same side in the syrian civil war i think that's a, a complicated one i also think um, turkey is probably suspicious of how france has been trying to involve itself in lebanon a former french mandate a former french colony which probably gets you know colonialism obviously also gets wrapped up in here and there is a history 
of French soldiers bringing French values to the Muslim world um, by the sword or by the gun or however you want to put that. And then there's also the issue of Greece, where, again, Turkey and France are very, very clearly on opposite sides and where France has taken the lead in pushing back against what looks like Turkish aggressiveness in the Eastern Mediterranean and even encroaching on on Greek territory. Um, So once you start to sort of zoom out there and you get beyond, as you say, those emotional issues, those issues that populists can use to animate their base, you suddenly realize that France and Turkey, um, you know, they're sort of... uh, they're, they're similar powers, I guess, in terms of potential, you know, population wise, in terms of military strategy. And they're also both Mediterranean powers with very similar geopolitical imperatives when it comes down to it. And they're on opposite sides of issues. So Erdogan gets to, he gets to fire up the base, but I think he also gets the Muslim world pointed at a country that he sees as a rival and a challenger, I think, not just to Islam, but specifically to Turkey's near-term geopolitical interests. Is that fair? Oh, absolutely. I mean, look, uh, and, and then thank you for taking the lead on on, on, on this geopolitical uh, you know, picture that needs to be kept in mind when we look at these things. And, and you know, this isn't just a, there is a religious aspect to it, but there is a, why, you know, why are, Macron and Erdogan and these other actors involved into it, it's because of what you just said. There are bigger geopolitical imperatives, there are opportunities, there are threats that need to be managed, and we need to keep that in mind. And so not only is are the two countries similar, but look at where Turkey is right now, to take your uh, argument a bit further. Uh, it wasn't long ago that the Turks were seeking membership in the European Union. And it went on for a while, and it continued even after Erdogan and his party came to power. But very quickly, I would say within a few years of being in power, uh, that seemed no longer attractive. And the idea was that, uh, you know, Turkey needs to be able to rise as a great power and not just be part of, uh, you know, the European Union. We're already part of NATO um, you know, it'll be great to be part of the European Union, but if we're being stopped there, we shouldn't put a whole lot of energy because ultimately we see ourselves as a great power. And so why would we want to have more multilateral compulsions when we want to, uh, to be able to have freedom of unilateral action? And this is the whole problem with, you know, uh, Turkey's membership in, in NATO uh, it's not going to say, hey, I don't want to be part of NATO. Uh, there's so much to gain from that. And the Turks are not going to give up that. But they want to be able to have their cake and eat it. So they want to be part of NATO. But they're also asserting themselves and saying, we're not just going to be sort of sitting, uh, you know, as primarily as a member of NATO. And when there's a consensus for action, we'll join the pack. Uh, and otherwise, we're quiet. And that happened. But though that era from Erdogan and, and the, the current leadership of Turkey's point of view is over and long gone and they're in a new era. So France uh, is, is one power that uh, p- provides, you know, is, an, is sort of like standing in the path of Turkey. But if you look at, you know, from a geographic point of view, it's still further off. It's not sort of in the immediate environment of, of Turkey, though there is overlap when you, when you focus on the Mediterranean. When, when the Turks try to get into, when we're talking about 
natural gas and control of those supplies and 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 freedom of navigation through the mediterranean as you make your way westwards and then of course north africa the, you know while uh you know algeria isn't one place and morocco you know the traditional spheres of influence of the french isn't where the sharks are playing right now they're playing in libya and, tu- and, and tunisia but they're getting closer so there is that there is that commonality in the here and now but turkey isn't the only issue that uh, uh, I'm sorry, the French aren't the only issue for the Turks. There's Germany as well. And, and if you look at the, the statement after the attack in Austria, Vienna, from uh, the German chancellor, uh, she basically said, you know, uh, this is Islamist terrorism and we need to tighten our resolve to fight for the, uh, against this. So uh, obviously that's not the same as countering Turkey, but the Germans, the point that I'm making is that Germany being the, the, the center of gravity of the European Union um, is also something that the Turks will have to contend. Uh, but at this point in time, uh, there isn't an issue that, you know, Erdogan or the Turks can latch onto when it comes to Germany. The moment is one in which France is taking the lead and there are geopolitical points to be scored and, and, and benefits to be gained. So you're seeing that. In other words, this is going to ebb and flow. Uh, you know, things may calm down when it comes to Islamic separatism, and that's something, you know, that we should talk about uh, before we wrap up this, uh, this podcast session. But the point that I'm making is that that's the moment right now, but it won't be, and there'll be other issues. So there's the issue of Greece. There's the issue of refugees. Uh, the, 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 the Turks have their eye on, uh, you know, ex- expanding their uh, sphere of influence, not just in Eastern Europe, but through the Balkans, and, and then really pushing towards the periphery of what is Western Europe. And they're also looking at Russia. As Russia becomes more weaker, which is, you know, uh, to be expected, given where Russia is, the Turks want to be able to be able to have the freedom to not worry about Russia so much, and then expand expand their influence westward. So this is part of a larger dynamic. So it's not just cartoons and blasphemy and Islamic separatism. Uh, these are the the, if you will, the manifestations of a much more broader and deeper, complicated geopolitical. Uh, dynamic that is going to unfold in the years and decades to come. I think the ironic thing about what Turkey has done um, is that in in sort of setting off this chain reaction of events, it's actually causing the European Union also to come together more as well. Um, you know, just a couple of weeks ago or months ago, I should say, you know, Austria and France are arguing about the EU bailout package. Now they're on the same page because they're both facing you know this this scourge or this threat of Islamist separatism, to use their language. Um, it also I never much liked Samuel Huntington's clash of, of civilizations, but it's hard to argue that you're not getting a sort of, you know, Christian versus Muslim conflict emerging here because Russia, just from an ideological level, the way that Putin has, has built up the Russian Orthodox church, um, the whole Azerbaijan Armenia conflict gets involved here too. another you know, Muslim Christian conflict. I worry about what that means going forward. But to your point, we also have to zoom out because it's a mistake just to focus on that part. That's one fault line. But when you zoom out a little bit, um, you know, think about the fact that the most populous Muslim nation in the world is Indonesia. And that gets wrapped up in the rise of China and in the con- contest for the Indo-Pacific, um, in what China is doing to its ethnic 
um, Uyghur population, which is also a Muslim population where Erdogan hasn't been willing to go after China for doing things that are far worse than just showing a cartoon in a classroom sort of thing. And then we also haven't even you know, picked up on the Pakistan-India conflict, which is maybe the scariest you know, simmering conflict in the entire world and where India went in and basically took over Kashmir um, you know, against w- w- over the objections of Pakistan, over the objections of some folks on the ground there. And I think it was just this past week that Pakistan said the part of Kashmir that it's occupying, it's going to let them become part of Pakistan. So you've got two, you know, two countries with nuclear weapons that are mortal enemies uh, for whom Muslim geopolitics and Hindu geopolitics is all mixing together and clashing. And there's another particular fault line. So, um, you know, with the last couple of minutes that we have, if we just zoom out at that level, pick any one of those or pick all of them? How how do you start to make sense of all of these huge conflicts that we're seeing between Muslim countries and between non-Muslim countries? And what role Islam in particular has going forward there versus the the underlying geopolitics? Because as we've pointed out here, I think both are very real. You know, for Turkey and Erdogan, the, the Muslim the, the Muslim element of this is very real. That's why people care. It's why it's a rallying cry. But the geopol- it also all doesn't work without the geopolitics. So I'll throw that huge question at you, Kamran, and respond to it however you like. Yeah, no, that's a great question. And, and I would say all we need to do is kind of look at, um, you know, go back into the medieval era. Uh, the medieval era had a lot of different Muslim states, uh, sultanates, emirates, caliphates, competing caliphates, um, and um, it wasn't as though they were all fighting non-Muslims. Um, they were fighting each other. Uh, so, you know, let's not forget the Ottomans versus the Safavids in Persia. Um, and then, of course, uh, you, if you go back to India, uh, you know, what pre-British India, uh, you had uh, far more conflict between rival uh, if you will, dynasties, Muslim dynasties, who are trying to overthrow each other, uh, you know, and they they did, you know, they succeeded one another and took power violently from one another uh, until the Mughal Empire consolidated. And even when the Mughal Empire was consolidating, it was also fighting with fellow Muslims uh, who wanted to come from Afghanistan or who were latecomers from Central Asia. And, and so what I'm trying to say here is that I don't think this is going to be, and this is where I think that Sam Huntington, uh, I really like his work on civil-military relations, but I think he got ahead of himself and into a into a space or into a thought process where he kind of like veered off into a direction where <laughs> I think it was out of his wheelhouse, if you will, this whole clash of civilizations. I don't think that it, it, it happens along those lines. I think there, there are clashes. So yes... You know, China is rising as a major force and there's going to be a competition, a fierce one with the United States. You want to call that a clash of civilizations? Fine. But that's one part of it, maybe the, the biggest part. Uh, but then, as you said, you know, you got all these things in the Muslim world in different geographies percolating uh, and they have their own intensity, India, Pakistan being the, the one, because this this is the probably the most densely populated quarter of the world, South Asia, and it has nuclear weapons and poverty and uh, equally intense uh, nationalist ideologies uh, laced with religion. So yes, they will take place. Russia is in the mix. The Turks will be combating the Russians. To your point about Erdogan 
not talking about the, the Uyghurs, of, of course, it doesn't make geopolitical sense for him to do that. He doesn't want to annoy the Chinese, and he's not going to do that. But let's sort of come into a world, imagine a world where he's not worried about the Chinese, and he's geographically more closer to the Uyghurs, uh, or in a position where his influence, or Turkey's influence, Erdogan may not be alive but, uh, by then, but Turkey's influence expands, let's assume that, towards into you know Southwest Asia. Uh, and, you know, they, they have greater influence over the Caspian region. Then, you know, and, and then they're in Central Asia. Then it makes sense for them to talk. So what I'm saying is that, that they, this isn't about religion. Religion has to be, you know, operationalized, refracted uh, in, in, in real context, in real time. So there is the text. The text is always there. It's in a book lying on your shelf somewhere or somewhere on your desk until you open it, read it, and do something with it. There's no pure religion. There are religious ideas. People choose, deliberately choose to operationalize some over the other, and it depends upon context. And that context is far more important if we want to understand why this is happening. So yes, religion is a great motivator, uh, but it's... It, it, it's it's it cannot be divorced from its geopolitical context. Otherwise, you can't explain why the Pakistani Prime Minister Imran Khan is going after Macron and saying, you know, in in far more milder way than than Erdogan, and saying, don't tell us about you know uh, freedom of expression because for us this is blasphemy. But then that same religious impulse. Uh, there's, you know, crickets from him when it comes to the Uyghurs, because why? Because Pakistan's great power ally is China. So can, there you go. I mean, you, can you, you want to call it hypocrisy? Yeah, sure. A lot of people will call it hypocrisy. But I think that it is the nature of, of geopolitics that actors are trapped in, in, the, in that broader geopolitics, and they make choices based on what is in their benefit. And it's not always driven by religion. I can't think of a better way to end, and I'm already excited for your third appearance on the podcast, Kamran. Thank you for being so generous with your time, and um, we'll talk to you soon. Take care. Thank you for having me again. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of The Perch Pod. If you haven't already, you can find us under the name The Perch Pod on every major streaming platform. Subscribe for downloads, follow us, all that good stuff. Uh, if you have feedback on this episode or on any episode, you can email us at info at perchperspectives.com. I can't promise that we'll reply to every single email that comes in, but I read every single one that comes in and I love hearing from listeners, so please don't be shy. Uh, you can find us on social media. Our Twitter handle is at Perchspectives because we love a good pun. Uh, we're also on LinkedIn under Perch Perspectives. Most importantly, please check out our website. It's www.perchperspectives.com. Besides being able to find out more information about the company, the services that we provide, and even to read samples of our work, you can also sign up for our twice-a-week newsletter on the most important political developments in the world. It's free. All you have to do is provide your email address. And even if you don't want to do that, you can read the post for free on our blog. Thanks again for listening. Please spread the word about Perch Perspectives and the Perch Pod, and we'll see you out there.
Thank you.